Good evening. My name is uh, Frances Flanagan and I'm a research affiliate at the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we get, begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respects to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Now, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first of the Small Changes Environmental Conversation Series, co-presented by the Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas. We live in a world that is radically different from every other generation. For many of us in Australia, it's a world of abundance. Our shops are full of unprecedented varieties of food and clothing. Much of it is cheaper than ever before. But there are stories to be told about the items that sit on our shelves. Many of the things we buy are the products of global supply chains of immense length, speed and complexity. Even if an item hasn't been made with toxic chemicals, unsustainable crops or exploitative work practices, and many still are, it's likely that it has travelled vast distances on carbon-emitting ships, jumbo jets and diesel trucks before it reaches you. There can be no doubt that globalisation is exerting a big cost on the planet. But the news isn't all bad. Local and artisan movements have emerged that are aiming to produce slow food, slow fashion, things that are well-made and designed to be used for a long time. In this conversation series, we will showcase some of the latest academic research on the connection between these big processes and the small decisions that we all make about what we eat, what we wear and what we drink. We will also put our researchers in dialogue with the people who are directly involved in the design and production of the things we consume. So tonight, our focus is fashion. And I'd like to introduce our panel. Lisa Hines is a PhD candidate in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. She's the author of the book Sustainability with Style, and she researches fashion and sustainability with an emphasis on the consumer experience of fashion. Kit Willow is the founder and designer of Kitex and a pioneer in design-led sustainable and ethical fashion. And Jana Quaintance-James is the ethical sourcing manager at David Jones and she's responsible for the development and delivery of David Jones' five-year ethical sourcing strategy. So tonight what we'll do is we'll, I'll ask the panellists to each introduce their work to you um, for about ten minutes each and then we will have a conversation together before opening up to the floor for questions. So first of all, Lisa. Thanks, Francis, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, and please bear with me. I have a cold. I'll try not to hack into the, um, into the microphone too much. So fashion and sustainability, two concepts often accused of being contradictory. One is known as planned obsolescence, and the other represents stability. But through my research, I aim to demonstrate that fashion can and should play an important role in the broader sustainability movement particularly the role it can play in engaging with people at the level of their daily lives. Tonight, I'm going to share with you some of the key sustainability concerns of fashion, discuss briefly the state of sustainable fashion today, and then introduce my research, including some preliminary findings. Fashion is the world's second most polluting industry, behind oil. Wastewater is a major pollution concern. For example, in China, which is responsible for over half of all global textile production, 2.5 billion tons of wastewater are emitted each year. 
Many chemicals are used in clothing, in clothing production and, and are known toxins. Many clothing factories are designated hazardous waste facilities. But people still live downstream, and they still drink with, drink, sorry, drink, bathe in, and cook with this water. Cotton is another major source of pollution. In addition to being a particularly thirsty crop, it can take 3,800 liters of water to create just one kilogram of cotton fiber. Cotton production also uses 25% of the world's insecticides and 11% of the world's pesticides. The chemicals used in cotton production are hazardous to cotton workers and to anyone who lives nearby as groundwater is, is polluted. And the United Nations and World Health Organization estimate that up to 77 million cotton workers, sorry, up to 77, cotton, 77 million cotton workers suffer poisoning from pesticides each year. There's grave human rights concerns for garment workers around the world as well, an issue that came to the fore following the 2013 Rana Plaza factory fire and collapse in Bangladesh, which took the lives of 1,100 people and injured 2,500 more, many of whom still await compensation today. The Rana Plaza disaster also highlighted the deep and complex supply chains present in the fashion industry. Many brands being produced at the factory had no knowledge that their garments were being sewn there because of the common practice of subcontracting in the garment industry. A traditional fashion supply chain includes several links, including inputs of raw materials, whether it's cotton, wool, or petrochemicals, yarn manufacturing, fabric manufacturing, and finally garment manufacturing. This last stage is known as cut, make, trim frequently. It's not as straightforward as just going from the factories to the shops, as many of us might assume. And as fashion production continues to shift to the developing global south and east, regulatory and sweatshop concerns prevail along each of these links, and transparency and traceability are increasingly difficult to achieve. Fashion in the early 21st century can also be marked by the rapid rise of fast fashion, named for the quick turnaround time from design to manufacture, but also for the speed with which consumers buy and dispose of clothing, fast fashion has truly revolutionized the apparel industry. Today, 80 billion new garments are made each year, and Zara is reportedly producing over 2.3 million pieces per day. The fast fashion business model encourages disposability with most clothing designed for less than 10 wares. And consumers are buying into this model of fashion and purchasing more pieces of fashion than ever before. In 1991, the average number of items purchased per person each year was 40, but by 2005 it had jumped to 69. And even though we're buying more pieces, we're actually spending less money overall. The cheap production methods and consumer demand have driven prices historically and artificially low. The increased consumption of fashion has increased the disposal of fashion as well. Every year, 21 billion pounds of waste textiles are sent to the landfill in the U.S. alone. Here in Australia, we're spending $2 billion a year on clothing that we never wear. And in the UK, post-consumer textile waste jumped 400% in just four years, from 2004 to 2008. And this has been attributed to the fast fashion revolution. Donation centers are also overflowing with our used clothing. And only one-third to one-fifth of all donated clothing is ever sold in the country of donation. The rest is shredded into rags or bundled up and sent to developing countries. I took this picture here in Tanzania at the popular second-hand market where I was staying, where clothing intended to be donated had been stolen and brought here to be sold instead. 
There are similar stories at markets around the world where this influx of secondhand Western clothing is negatively impacting the local fashion industries as well. But enough doom and gloom for one night, I think. Um, the, yeah, amongst, these, amongst these overwhelming figures, there's a small but growing sustainable fashion movement taking place. And so just to clarify, when I use the term sustainable fashion, I mean fashion that's being produced either with environmental measures or with ethical production practices in place, or both. But because this movement is so new, it's really just in its infancy, it's really rare to find a label that's doing everything correctly. And if we're um, talking about existing brands, they really have to take these changes one step at a time. So I'm trying to incorporate everyone who's making an effort, if you will. Sustainable fashion designers are experimenting with new fibers like recycled polyesters, plastics and rubbers, vegan leather, organic and fair trade cotton, and other renewable natural fibers like modal, tensile, and myocell, among other developments. And as you can see from this montage and the other imagery that I'm using tonight, it's increasingly important when launching a new sustainable fashion brand that aesthetics and style take a key role. There's we're trying to overcome this stigma of eco-fashion of the past and really look beyond the old Hessian sacks. And though Australia has lagged a little bit behind the Europe, um, Europe and the U.S. in terms of size and popularity in the movement, as part of Clean Cut, I helped launch um, the first sustainable fashion show at Sydney's Fashion Week in 2014, which was a great event. Um, but London and New York had included sustainable fashion in their fashion weeks since 2006 and 2009. But despite our slow start, the movement's really starting to gain traction here in Australia. I'm particularly thrilled Kit's here tonight. I do love her clothes. I'm not just saying that because she's here. I do own a fabulous dress I've had for years. Um, but really because she's Australia's most prominent fashion designer to enter this space, and similarly, David Jones' recent announcement um, to commit to ethical and sustainable sourcing has the potential to really revolutionize the way that Australians buy fashion, among other items. So for everybody um, kind of involved in the Australian sustainable fashion movement, this has felt like a year when things are really starting to gain momentum, which is really exciting. In spite of this momentum, information to help consumers navigate sustainable fashion is not always readily available, and information frequently reflects just one link in the supply chain of fashion. For example, organic certification applies to growing the cotton, but doesn't necessarily apply to the other stages in the link, in the, in the chain. And Ethical Clothing Australia certifies the cut-make-trim stage of production of clothes produced here in Australia, but doesn't yet address the manufacturing of, of the fabrics themselves. There's various websites and apps like Good On You, that help break clothing brands, but the responsibility to make sustainable fashion choices largely rests with the consumer right now doing his or her own research before they buy a piece of item, a piece of clothing. And the lack of transparency for most brands can make this particularly difficult. So as a, as a result of my involvement in this movement and the wider, um, the wider environmental movement here in Australia, I've, I recognized the need for more research into fashion and sustainability particularly in understanding the gaps in awareness, understanding, and action between the industry, advocates, and consumers. And so I started my PhD in March of last year. I'm conducting qualitative research that's designed to examine the complexities in the fashion system that may impact production and consumption of sustainable fashion here in Australia. 
A broader aim of my research is to examine how people engage with issues of sustainability at the level of their daily lives. And fashion provides a significant and unique perspective on sustainability, both because of the nature of clothing, it's something that we all engage with every day when we get dressed in the morning, but also because of the role fashion plays in identity construction and lifestyle choice. So my research consists of two components, research with the movement and research with consumers. So far, I've conducted over 25 interviews with um, and attended many, many events with those involved in the sustainable fashion movement, including advocates, designers, retailers, educators, and bloggers. And it's still, um, it's still too early to draw any final conclusions, but there are a number of trends developing that I thought I'd share with you all today. Um, first, nearly everybody agrees that style and aesthetics of fashion created sustainably has to be as good or better than what's already out there. This mimics research that's been conducted by Naini Maki and others in other countries that um, basically say that aesthetics is important to all consumers, whether, you have whether you're looking for ethical shopping or not. Second, many cite, cite the Rana Plaza disaster as a real turning point in the movement, including those who've been involved in the movement for many years. Third, most participants cite ethical or moral motivations for designing and producing sustainably as opposed to financial motivations. I'm really not finding that people are in it to make a quick buck off of green consumers, um, though I'm sure they wouldn't mind making a bit of money along the way. That doesn't seem to be the main motivation. Um, though, of course, we need these labels to be financially sustainable as well. It's another issue. Um, fourth, I've found that sustainable de fashion designers typically, typically have to do a lot of the on-the-ground work themselves to create a sustainable supply chain. There appears to be lack of regulations that would allow them to do this remotely with any level of confidence. So I've heard many tales of designers traveling all over the world, in India, China, Indonesia, just trying to create a sustainable supply chain that they can feel confident with. And fifth... Um, there's mixed consensus on whether there is interest or demand for sustainable fashion from consumers in general. So some think that it's high, but consumers just can't find the clothing. Many think there's only a really small percentage of people interested. But nearly everybody speaks of the importance of educating consumers to become more aware of, sustain of fashion sustainability issues. There's interesting implications for these findings, particularly relating to the issues of ethics, morality, and education. So, of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with having moral and ethical motivations, and we definitely need more education to shift uh, fashion in a more sustainable direction. But existing research in environmental behavior change suggests that moralizing messages and education-based campaigns are not always effective in changing behavior. So starting from that knowledge base, it's not immediately apparent what, might, what the best method of advocating sustainable fashion to a wider audience may be. And it may also explain why many existing campaigns targeting shopping and consumption have not been as effective as the campaigners might have hoped. In addition, when we consider fashion's deep and elaborate supply chains, anti-consumerist messages like these uh, may be at risk of oversimplifying a complex problem by placing too much emphasis on stop-shopping tactics and not looking at the bigger picture of fashion. So now on to the shoppers. I'm in the early stages of this component of my fieldwork with fashion shoppers, which I anticipate completing by the end of the year. Uh, this research includes in-depth interviews and memory work, 
and also an ethnography of fashion shopping to gain a better understanding of how fashion is consumed and what agency consumers enact amidst the fashion system, including marketing, the media, their peers, and other sources of information or inspiration. While knowledge of sustainable fashion design practices and and research on ethical consumers continues to grow, much remains to be understood about mainstream fashion consumers, and in particular, why they purchase fashion, how aware they are about sustainability issues pertaining to fashion, and what, if any, connections can be made between fashion and broader sustainability goals. In this research, I'm also positioning fashion shopping as a significant social practice and a site of aesthetic experience. Beyond merely a visual appeal, aesthetics aesthetics takes into account both the mental and sensual aspects of life, which challenges the emphasis on appealing to consumers' rational sides, as was seen in many of the campaigns and the stats that I showed you before. (laughs) That wasn't really going to get you to, to enact any change. But neither fashion nor shopping are purely rational experiences, but they're laden with sensual, visual, and other factors in terms of identity construction and communication. So by immersing myself with fashion shoppers, I plan on delivering a more accurate and rich description of the process of consuming fashion. Because just as the fashion production system is is inherently complex, so too is the fashion consumption process. And it's only by understanding these complexities in the activities that make up our daily lives that we can hope to engage people with issues of sustainability in a meaningful and lasting manner. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Hello, everyone. (laughs) I come from a very different angle, I suppose, um, in terms of inherently caring very much about the environment and my footprint and family's footprint and, you know, eating organic vegetables at home and applying that awareness into Willow, the the first um, fashion brand that I launched in May 2003. And as that business grew, I was looking into you know all the every single garment that arrived in from China or from any other factories that actually were wrapped in plastic, and then that was ripped off to then be steamed and then rewrapped in plastic to then go out to stores, and and then to be ripped off and put onto wooden coat hangers and then the plastic coat hangers. So it was all more about waste, and I so then you know converting us to biodegradable bags and and um, and reusing the plastic coat hangers and that was sort of where and packaging as well like using um, recycled paper etc that was where I was applying <clears throat> the sustainable angle of fashion and in having the brand Willow and building that that business with a wonderful team over 10 years <clears throat> I had no concept that fashion was the second biggest polluter in the world um, and so so having the awareness of of um, an innate passion for nature um, and awareness of you know the footprint from a from a pure um, visual term in terms of um, packaging and, and waste um, plastic waste um, that was the angle that I looked at, not materials, which is really where it, um, you know, 70% of the, the cost of fashion comes from the materials. And it wasn't until I 
an atom bomb dropped and Willow, the business that I'd built, um, it was, I knew that it was happening, but it just was gone sort of overnight. And at that moment, up I was all night that night, I just knew inherently that what I was to do next was some, like, what do we need in the world? I was like looking out the window at night, on the sitting on my couch in my bedroom, going, I'm, "I've got the yearn. Like, I'm not stopping. And what am I going to do? Like, like, I can't stop designing and creating. But there is so much in the world, and the next thing that I do has to be about winning, win-win, and applying the knowledge that I have on the consumer connection that I have about what they want to buy and and that innate feeling about what women want to wear with fabric and working with people with a like-minded... It's like a tribe almost. So pulling together in the globe this like-minded tribe from the farmers who don't want to be, you know, dropping dead before the age of 45, which is what they do on the cotton field, spraying the insecticides and pesticides through to um, the, the, the management that are actually putting together organic cotton fields and supporting it, through to the, the artisans and the groups around supporting the artisans, weaving fabrics and um, you know, uh, creating beautiful textiles, to manufacturers, to um, retail staff, to the head office staff. And it's, and it was, it's about win-win. It's about... Um, not just appealing to um, green consumers and it's about just appealing to to consumers on pieces of clothing that they're going to have a connection with through design, which is what happens for every fashion brand in the world. Um, You know, a consumer, there is so much product and choice and when they're shopping, they're going to have a connection to something and it could be the fit or it could be um, the colour or the print or... Um, the shape, there's something that draws them to that piece. Whether it's sustainable or not isn't going to drive their purchase. And I suppose from my point of view, I believe that by making consumers constantly aware of, you know, this is the effect, you know, um, non-organic cotton has, this is the effect that polyester has on the planet, this is the effect that um, this has on the, and he constantly drilling them with statistics and, and impact isn't going to increase the uh, sales of brands that are doing it because consumers aren't going to buy things just because they're green. Consumers are going to buy things because they, they have a connection with it. And, um, and that's what I was, I was like, it's my job, it's, it's, it's my role now. This is why this has happened with Willow. It's, it's the journey that I'm on and the path that I'm on. This is the reason to have had that knowledge and experience of what um, 10 years in, in building a fashion business created and then to apply it to... Um, so that, that job's done, you know what I mean? All that hard stuff and great team and we know, we know how to build a business again to apply that then to just simply consciously sourcing things and creating beautiful design that, that is not compromised because it's sustainable um, is really where sort of KidX was born. And <clears throat> I met a man called Johann Zeitz um, one month before 
everything happened with Willow. And he is the chairman of sustainability at Curring and he is um, on the board of Curring. And he basically, he invented the environmental P&L at Puma. And he was the one who actually said to me the 70% of the, the cost of materials at Puma came from... Um, the, sorry, 70% of the cost in the environmental P&L came from the materials, which was the light globe, you know, light bulb moment. But he's really integrated the whole sustainable um, sourcing process into Curring. And if you go to Curring's website, they actually visibly um, now show each of the brands that they have. So they've got Gucci and they've got Puma and they've got... Um, um, Alexander McQueen and Stella McCartney and Saint Laurent and um, Balenciaga and so each of those brands now you can go in on their website and see the impact that each of the fabrics are having within those brands so it's worth having a look at that and I said to him why obviously um, Johan's very passionate about the environment and he um, he's also started B Corporation which um, registers companies that are acting sustainably as B Corporations. Um, and he was actually saying that most of the B Corp registered businesses are um, second to none, much more profitable, have more staff retention. Um, they're very good businesses. They're thinking sustainably. They're thinking of an ecosystem and not just of, as a short-term gain. And that in itself, again, you attract a tribe of people. So the, you send the vibration out and you, and you start to attract um, a tribe of people that have the same belief system. So they've got passion involved with their jobs and they've got love involved with their jobs. And the consumers are more passionate about what they're buying whether or not they love that product, but to have a story behind that product makes it um, word of mouth spread as well. So, um, so he started B Corporation, and there's a there's a business in Melbourne that um, registers uh, companies in Australia. There hasn't yet been an Australian fashion brand, which we hoped to be <laughs> registered B Corp. Um, that's one of the aims, and they look at um, it from every angle through to. Um, you know, staff contracts and how you deal with maternity leave to um, how you package your your dispatch um, and where your materials are from and the impact that that's having. So that was that was a real moment, and I've been in touch with him over that you know the last sort of two years about what um, what I'm doing and about what. Um, you know, new sourcing, etc. He he said that um, Pinot, who owns um, Curring, basically it's his belief, and he's got that kind of fifty to a hundred year view. He doesn't look at the next five years. Is that the generation? You know, the fact is that there are limited resources on the planet. There are some key hard facts of what's going on right now, and the population is increasing, and consumers are buying more and they're buying and it's costing them less and it's more disposable. And so there's waste to consider and 13 million tonnes of... or trillion tonnes of um, discarded clothing in America per annum, and that's only in America. There's land landfills of it. Um, so there are some cold, hard facts around what is uh, what impact 
we as humans are having on this planet and it is unsustainable at the rate that we're going. So it's of their view that if we do not start addressing this, we're all stuffed, and, and that the millennials, the next generation, is it's going to be their first... Um, they're going to be very aware of what they're buying. It's still They've still got to love it um, and have that connection with it, but the millennials will be very much much more conscious consumers than the consumers that are that are around so the companies that are addressing this now are the companies in the future that are sustainable and i suppose for me it was easier to start a business with this view and what is a sustainable business and what is an ethical business well every business it's it's about defining it i suppose you can't there's no definition of um it's xyz and that's it and if you're not that you're not sustainable ethical it's 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 what is that business's viewpoint of being sustainable and ethical and um, I think every little step in, in towards it helps. Um, and I think that the awareness of the impact that uh, the materials have in fashion for designers and creators and innovators are, is, is, is key and so important. And one of the, the figures that shocked me so much was the fact that cotton, we consume in, in textiles 80% in cotton. And in the world, and and that creates 20% of the world's water pollution, which just seems crazy. And then communities are affected by it, and um, <clears throat> it affects so many people. Workers are affected by it. They don't live past the age of um, 45. The people who are providing Monsanto, the insecticides and pesticide chemicals, are also providing the chemotherapy for the um, workers who are uh, who've got cancer from spraying the fields. So that kind of business model for them is very much lose-lose but they are, there's very few people that win out of their business model and that's the shareholders um, and not the, the, not looking at it as, a, as an ecosystem as a, you know, a large ecosystem so <laughs> um, and where was I yeah, I've lost my train of thought, two minutes, is that two minutes? okay <laughs> Okay, that's okay. Um, okay, that's it. I think we'll go to questions and I'll be out of a lower. I've lost my train of thought now. That's it, thank you. <laughs> um, my name's Jan Acquaintance James. I'm the ethical sourcing manager at David Jones. Um, I really uh, strongly agree with Lisa in what she stated in terms of the, um, particularly the Australian market around sustainable fashion and ethical sourcing um, really shifted on the back of the Rana Plaza tragedy in 2013. Um, my background is in ethical sourcing. Um, I've worked in this industry for the past 10 years and um, done so in the UK and Europe. And companies there are much or have been much further ahead in terms of, of, of understanding that they had a role to play in impacting um, the social and environmental and ethical conditions in the supply chain. Um, and when I returned to Australia in 2011, I was actually like, oh my goodness, where am I going to get a job? Because it was the market was kind of that. People were really scared to, to talk about you know, or the Pandora's box that might be the supply chain. 
And then 2013, um, I think many companies in Australia actually got caught with their pants down um, and really not having, because they're so scared to talk about the issues, really not have taken um, uh, responsibility at a company level for what might be happening and used that influence and um, that they had to influence change. So um, for that awful, awful tragedy, um, it's been really amazing to see the sustainable fashion movement in Australia shift in this way and do so really rapidly. Um, in the context of David Jones, I think that was a company who um, definitely could have been doing more at that time um, and a, sh- a short time later it released its first supplier code of conduct in, 2013, in September 2013. Um, and then Rolf Forge, another year, I think that internally people, the business, sorry, resources or people within the business who felt that the business should be doing more on these issues were slowly getting more traction. Then come August 2014, the business was um, wholly acquired by the Woolworth South Africa group. Um, and they are a business that is very far, much further ahead in terms of understanding their supply chain from this perspective. They do a lot of organic cotton. They're a food-based business, so... They do have a greater... I think it's easier to understand traceability in food, typically. Um, But they've they've done a lot, anyway. And so they immediately saw what David Jones was not doing in this context and were quite troubled by that. And um, very quickly, the resources and um, sort of mandate to build an ethical sourcing program um, was received um, by the business. And so then I've been employed in February and um, I have been developing an ethical sourcing program with a team of two that report to me understanding or just chipping off the top of understanding um, in the last few months of of our deeply complex supply chain Um, I mean as you can imagine we stock everything, every kind of product pretty much, uh, whether it be food or um, vacuum cleaners or apparel or um, ostrich feather dusters not sure why you would need one of those, but I don't know if they dust better or not. But anyway, um, so it's, there's a real complexity in there, handbags, all sorts. Um, uh, and then we have, um, as of today, 1,219 vendors. So there's a lot of them as well. And also we have a branded supply chain. So it's actually, you know, it's the other branded um, organisations. We have a very small percentage of our businesses um, under a David Jones brand. So how you kind of influence in that context is, is quite different. So there's there's lots of complexities there. However, one of also the big pieces of work that have been undertaken um, in the last few months and has just, believe I believe, been approved by the executive is the five, first five-year ethical sourcing strategy for David Jones, which is very exciting. It's um, very ambitious I'm going to talk about it in more detail, but as a part of developing that strategy, I wanted to share with you some of the um, consulta- well, consultation that we've been done. I'm not sure how well you can see this right at the back. I'm apologies if you can't. What we've conducted is a um, what in sustainability circles would be called a material materiality process, um, and what other people might just think of as an engagement process. Um, so over the past um, period, we have engaged with all types of stakeholders, um, so uh, people internally, all at from a stores level to a support centre, um, to NGOs and sort of industry um, 
uh, stakeholders. Um, we have um, you know, sort of sustainability experts that have been involved. We've talked to our suppliers. We've talked to um, the landlords that host us in their buildings. Um, we've talked to every type of stakeholder, um, and it's been you know, sort of 60 hours of interviews and um, numerous roundtables and, and that kind of thing. Um, that process basically um, engaged those stakeholders on these issues that are on the side of the slide you can see. Um, so, um, sorry, I'm just... Um, so each of those are, are numbered and ultimately we have... Um, asked our stakeholders in those groups to rate them on the view of how important that issue is to them and how important that issue is um, to David Jones as a business. Um, and so then put all the analysis into the pipe and out comes this picture, which is each of these issues um, related, um, rated rather on the scale. So if something is on the top... Um, in that far corner, then it is of high importance to both um, David Jones um, as a business and um, extremely high importance to our stakeholders. So as you can see, and great news for me in my role, um, is that um, the three top issues that have come out of all that huge piece of stakeholder engagement are related to our supply chain, and they are um, human that, that our stakeholders feel that we should be taking action on is human trafficking and slavery worker health and safety in factories, um, and ethical dealings with our suppliers. So there's, a, there's, another, there's a other, six other components to the sustainability strategy around employee engagement, well-being, environment, etc., which other clever people manage in the business. Um, and then the seventh um, element, ethical sourcing strategy. Um, so that's been very validating, um, and it's got a huge amount of tension within our business um, when I'm doing it in my program. Um, we've also, as a part of this, conducted um, some consumer research, and I just was pondering that I'll try and get the raw data for Lisa in her um, PhD. I was really amazed at what came back um, from consumers in terms of the level of understanding and the sort of ambitiousness um, that they felt um, should be undertaken by David Jones um, in this context. Um, and you know, really clever, detailed responses um, around how they thought that we should engage. Um, really strong theme around human trafficking and slavery, I must say, across the data. This is just a, a few of the comments that I could fit on a slide and hopefully someone at the back will be able to see. Um, but um, it was really strong, detailed messaging, which gave me a lot of comfort. And it sort of surprised me in the sense that I wasn't sure whether consumers really knew. Obviously, I... Um, role in the um, in the movement, and um, so I hear a lot of people talking about the issues, but I don't, you know, the other consumer person. Um, this was sort of an online study, and these responses here were actually in um, uh, in response to the question: Is if you were the CEO of David Jones, what would you do to inspire positive change? Um, I don't think I put it up here, but there was one that. Um, was creating a whole new brand for David Jones. They were like, Organic by David Jones. I was like, wow. That's <laughs> um, so that's great. Um, so, therefore, we have a plan, um, which is um, this ethical sourcing strategy. Um, overall, the strategic intent is that we will not just have the due diligence or make sure that X, Y, Z is being done, but rather that we will use our influence and, and capacity to 
to influence the supply chain to have a positive impact over the long term on the social and environmental and ethical standards in our supply chain. Just as a sidestep, I guess beauty without harm means to us labour standards, um, decent labour standards, um, no undue environmental impact or or minimising that environmental impact. Um, decent treatment of animals in the supply chain um, where they are um, borrowed and uh, finally um, no issues of bribery and corruption. So that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, It's deeply, deeply complex doing this type of thing, as you can imagine, especially as um, uh, we have such a complex supply chain, but um, that's why this plan is... um, calming to me so in the times when I freak out about the amount of work that we have to do um, but the, that's the strategic intent to have the overall positive impact and it has six strategic objectives which you can see here and um, there's about 20 slides that sit behind this which explains the 57 initiatives that sit under the um, six so I won't go into those tonight however um, I will just touch on each of those components. So in terms of developing systems, policies and tools, um, we have a lot of work to do um, in terms of making sure that we as a business have articulated the policies um, around the issue and position statements around issues that are important to us. So for example, we've never had a standalone animal welfare policy um, and that's one of the things that's in development. Um, we need to constantly update our code of conduct um, we need to um, get some proper systems and to manage all the data that I and my team are getting around the supply chain. So, I mean, we're getting um, questionnaires back at the moment from 1,100 vendors. There's a lot of information, and we have to figure out a way of collating that and organising it consistently and understanding um, what it means and how to use the information to prioritise what we do. Um, secondly, number two is engaging our vendors in supply chain. Yes, it's about um, supply chain mapping and um, audit data, but it's also about the building capacity of our vendors to address um, the gaps that we identify. So, for example, if there is issues related to health and safety in um, a set of Chinese factories, then our intent is to um, run training for those factories that they participate in and, and try and bring them up to standard. Um, and equally, we think that there's a role that David Jones can play in the Australian market in terms of bringing other brands along on that journey. So there's a lot of brands that supply us that don't have an idea of how to manage these issues at the moment. However, we can teach them, we can bring them along and um, encourage them and help them understand um, what they need to do. I think there's a real opportunity in that context in terms of sustainable materials as well because um, I'm not sure that... Um, there's a high level of understanding around the impacts of um, polyester mix or you know, or cotton or, or so forth. Um, thirdly, we'd like to um, support, we'll undertake initiatives to um, support wellbeing and empowerment in factories and communities. This relates to issues such as the living wage, um, also to um, uh, undertaking community developments that are connected, community development projects, sorry, that are connected with our supply chain. Um, so, for example, that might mean, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that this is going to be, but um, a factory in Bangladesh or a series of factories in Bangladesh or China that have um, uh, where David Jones purchases from, we would run a community development project with, um, for the workers in that factory on nutrition or health or something like that. So that's sort of what that looks like. 
Um, we're going to engage um, heavily with industry and community. Um, there's lots of intractable issues in this space that we can't solve alone. Um, so one, for example, is the um, participating in the Cotton Pledge, which is um, the prohibition of cotton from Uzbekistan um, and um, where there is state-sponsored forced adult and child labour in the cotton harvesting season. Um, so David Jones has pledged not to um, source cotton from Uzbekistan um, and we're participating in an industry initiative to um, try and collectively influence the government there um, to uh, change their practices. Um, we also need to work um, heavily with our Woolworths group um, uh, friends um, and uh, comrades um, five really important components is building internal awareness capacity of our people. If I, um, you know, buyers in our group um, who actually have the relationships with suppliers and decide what we purchase and in, in the way we purchase it, um, they play a very important role. We also want to do a lot of work with store staff and bringing them along on that journey and helping them understand what we do. And then finally, um, we'd like to be the ethical choice for the consumer. I see a future where people can come to David Jones and have confidence in the due diligence that has been done by our business um, and know that the products being purchased there are um, in line with your values. It will take me a while to get to every product, I have to tell you. Um, however, there's lots of initiatives in here that are doing sustainability um, credentials at the point of sale, so whether that be about organic cotton, um, animal testing free um, accredited beauty range um, you know, all sorts of that type of thing and, and we want to talk very loudly about what we do and, and we're not promising to be perfect um, or that there will never be an issue but um, we're excited about the journey and we want everyone else to get on it too so I think that's the end of me Well thanks to all our speakers for three fascinating uh, introductions, all very complimentary and all very interesting. Now, can I invite you all to come up to the podium? And um... it's really cold. I see people in the audience. <laughs> so, I have to confess that uh, in preparation for my role this evening, I had a very enjoyable bit of homework, which was to go shopping. And I took myself to David Jones and um, I had a look at Kit's collection, which was also a very enjoyable process. I'm afraid I didn't. <laughs> I'm afraid I didn't. Not yet. Um, and I must say I was quite surprised because having heard so much about you as a sustainability designer, the labels certainly did not shout out to me at all about sustainability issues. I found that quite um, intriguing. But I find that having heard you speak, that suddenly makes a lot of sense to me now because the way you have um, explained the process in quite beautiful terms was a sense that your buyers are um, already engaged in a process of kind of slow looking and, and thinking about what they're buying in a very um, considered kind of way. Um, so thank you for uh, telling us about that. Um, I've got quite a few questions, but maybe I'll start with you, Kit, and ask um, whether the process of, of choosing sustainable fabrics and materials you talk about from the button to the zip, everything being sustainable, has that changed your... Um, the, the way you design. I mean, the analogy I'm thinking of, is it a bit like when you, you know, find out you have to go gluten-free, you just make the same cake but with gluten-free flour? Or, or do you actually, you know, make your products differently um, in some fundamental way? Um, I suppose if you use gluten-free flour, it tastes different. Right, <laughs> right. 
Is it every time? Yeah. Might need to go closer. Oh, there you go. Um, So, yeah, as I said, gluten-free flour. (laughs) Well, gluten-free always tastes a little bit different. doesn't taste quite as good, I don't think. But but using organic um, textiles, for instance, you know, this top is one of many organic cotton which means that no insecticides or pesticides have been used in the cropping process doesn't change the design and the fit of the garment and that's what I was sort of saying that um, twofold is one it's, it's, it's actually more focused because it's about applying still your same design aesthetic creation um tools and and that instinct of knowing what women want to wear but just applying it within a more limited um, scope of materials and there are so many materials to choose from Mm. and it's quite an easy cull you know at the office we're like no polyester mix and there's so many goddamn polyester mixes because when it is polyester mix it means that it never breaks down So when um, anything, with a little, even the tiniest bit of polyester, it can never be upcycled. Um, Silk breaks down, cotton breaks down eventually, um, wool breaks down eventually, hemp, linen, all those, all those fibres. But um, even 100% polyester is as bad as it is in its creation process, um, releasing nitrous oxide into into the environment, which is much uh, more toxic than carbon dioxide five times more toxic so it's really bad polyester but at least it can be recycled and so so we're quite clear at the office about what Gina's sitting in in the audience and works with me on sourcing she's a very good little researcher and yeah we're very clear about what we can and can't do so we cull very easily and then there's a smaller but still as um, desirable group of fabrics, if not more beautiful and probably more honest textiles to be working with. Mm. Um, And in some cases they cost more because you're not doing any polyester mix in there. But um, in other cases, the organic cotton that we've come across hasn't hasn't cost more. So to answer your question, I think that it hasn't changed the design and that's where that second fold in saying for the consumer for me it's not about preaching to the consumer Mm. and this is organic this is organic Mm. like they're not going to buy they they've got to love it they've got to chart on the you know be attracted to it put it on it's got to fit and they've got to love what it is so I'm not like this about this sustainable I'm we're, we're honestly doing it as a very strong undercurrent to the business and in releasing you know, the information on KidX, yes, it's been part of the education process about the positioning of the brand mm. but as it, and, and part of the storytelling process about where the fabrics are from. Like in Resort, we used um, a textile um, that, silk that was all dyed by colours of nature, which is basically um, plants that some of them have Ayurvedic benefits. Um, and it's helping communities and you know there's a beautiful stories around mm. some of the fabrics so that storytelling will continue and that's so important and it also highlights all the hands that touch you know the garments along the way because there's so many people involved with just to get that one piece um, of fashion so many humans are involved with it fashion is so human intensive mm. so it's about um, 
Yeah, it's it's. I don't think that it changes the yeah. the design. Yeah, thank you, Kit. Thank you, Kit. Um, Jana, your work is. Uh, amazingly ambitious, <laughs> the kind of changes that uh, you're hoping to make, um, and particularly when you consider the range of products that include um, items like kits, but then down to um, perhaps not fast fashion, but items that are brought, bought by people in a hurry um, who, don't, who aren't in position, I suppose, to do that kind of slow process of, of looking and thinking. Um, I wonder... Um, how how aggressively or how openly David Jones will be marketing um, the, itself as as a as an organisation that is undergoing this, this this huge process. I know it's five years in the making, but um, yeah, it's probably more than like ten, sure. fifteen years. I, sure. I suspect there'll be another five year strategy afterwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, I think uh, I think it's a good question. The as I sort of mentioned in terms of how we would talk to the consumer about it is, is that I think initially there's product specific, some initial product specific things that we can do and we and we'll be going on a journey with understanding into those products and getting real confidence in what's happening in those in the production of those mm-hmm. so that we can feel comfortable talking about them um, uh, in terms of the broader overall piece I think that's sort of happening at the same time mm-hmm. but um, I mean, I don't think we, we're very clear that we're on a journey and it's not, it's a long Absolutely. one. Um, yeah. And uh, I don't know that there ever is a finite no. end point. No. Anyway, I'm it sure that's not really, right. it's not, it's, it's unfortunate, it's very, um, it's not black and white and I don't think there's a day where I'll go, yeah, yeah. It's, every yeah. single one is done. There's always going to be opportunities to improve more. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of those. Yeah both sides of things, I think. Yeah, I suppose I'm thinking about the almost the public education role that an organisation as big as David Jones can play. Um, the analogy I'm thinking of is Marks and Spencers in the UK who um, made a big switch to only using um, canned tuna that was, that was sourced by Poland line rather than other kinds of fishing techniques. And they were quite open about putting, you know, when you went to M&S, it was up on their wall um, saying that they did this. And I think a lot of the consumer responses was, um, oh, well, we didn't know that was a problem, but you're doing it great. (laughs) So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it is important to note the difference between the private label products, which have a David Jones brand on it, and the branded products, um, and my ability to influence those two things. Like, um, Wacken have a much quicker and um, probably greater impact on the private label ones but that's why we've taken the um, awareness raising approach because I want to build the capacity of those brands to do it for themselves Um, because the expectation is that they you know that they will have systems and processes to to do this themselves and it's not sustainable for that sort of um, you know they need to own it and want it and Uh you know see the value in doing it Um, but we just hope that we can give them the skills and tools that they need to do it. Yeah, and can I just ask you one more question? Sure. Um, what is it like for you in the office, if that's not too much of a personal question? Mm-hmm. Um, as a sociologist who uh, came up with this idea of sustainability managers who are in your sort of position as um, tempered radicals was the term they used. And I thought it was a really interesting term because it, it sort of implies that one's radicalism is sort of tempered by being in a corporate environment, but also this sense of, like, the steel is very hard. It's been beaten, <laughs> beaten yeah. up perhaps quite a lot by... Um, alternative philosophies or other um, 
ideas that perhaps you know a business is here to look after its bottom line. So uh, yeah. if you can, I'd it's love to hear a bit about I'm what it's definitely, like. I'm definitely a tempered radical. Yeah. Um, I yeah. was quite <laughs> troublesome as a young person and a university student. Um, but I had the uh, opportunity when I finished doing my master's in the UK um, to work for a business called Impact with a double T, um, which is a consultancy based in London, that is really genuinely trying to find that sweet spot between what is good for business, what is good for business, makes sense for workers, Um, and there is a place where that is possible. It's just a matter of figuring out how how you get there. Um, You know, and they do some amazing work around how do you increase factory workers' wages by incentivising their productivity um, and also using that as a way that you can reduce working hours. So workers go home with more, they don't work extreme work, work hours, but they've also actually produced more for the factory and, you know, and, and, you know, you, and there's improved HR um, processes so that you have better retention and people have less sick days and all of that kind of that place. So I early on saw the power of business to change. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, probably, if you'd said that I was doing this to my 17-year-old self, I would have said, no way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think some, some of the companies in the world are bigger than some, you know, many of the countries. It's kind of like, if we don't look at business as the um, driver of change. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I think it's still early days at DJs, and I don't, um, I'm under no illusion that every single person in that business is totally behind what I'm doing. But I walk, in, walk into a room, it's been, I've been pleasantly surprised by walking into a room with 20 people. I've probably already got four or five of them. Maybe four or five are totally no. Yep. And then there's a batch in the middle and I might, in that session I might shift half of the middle guys up to the top yep. and we'll just continue doing that. Um, I intend to be around for a while. Fantastic. <laughs> That's good news. Um, Lisa, <laughs> I wonder if you could just give us some advice, perhaps, um, to us as shoppers as, of, of what to look for in a broader sense when we go shopping. I guess I'm curious too, is it the, is it the case that there's any relationship in a rule of thumb kind of way between the amount of money we pay for a product and how sustainable it is? Um, yeah, it's a loaded question, I suppose. Oh, so I don't <laughs> no, mean no, it to be no, at no, all. No, I guess fine. I just have this instinctive sense when something's really cheap, yeah. it's not. <laughs> but I wonder if the opposite is the tr- is the case too, that if I'm paying a lot of money, I can feel a bit smug about myself. That yeah. It's probably okay. Yeah, no, that's good. Both are good questions. Um, I'll start with the second bit. But, uh, I mean, yes, if you see a pair of jeans for $5 or even $20, then absolutely you have to stop and question who made that, what's it made out of... Um, and, you know, I'm 99% confident that it's not a, you know, ethical or sustainable purchase. However, making a decision based on a very expensive item could be equally problematic because it doesn't really give you that confidence. It, it could just be a, you know, it could be a very expensive to make garment, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they've used any ethical or, or environmental measures in making it. So um, typically just my advice to average consumers is definitely to look at the label, um, look at the materials that it's made of. Kit described before how blends are really tricky materials. So if you wanted to make a smarter decision, then look for organic cotton if you're going to choose a cotton option. Um, Or at least a, a pure, whatever it is, a pure blend so that it can either biodegrade or be recycled or upcycled into something later. Um... 
And again, looking at where it where it was made doesn't always give you a clean answer either. So if it's made in Australia, I always look for the Ethical Clothing Australia tag if I don't know the actual um, production system that, that something was made in, then I would look for that. Um, but similarly, I don't, I don't ever want people to not buy things that were made in China or Bangladesh or wherever because um, those are important jobs to people assuming that they're being produced in ethical factories. So um, the best advice I give to people is just to buy fewer but really good quality items and love them before you buy them. Love them and take care of them and, mm. and keep them as long as that you can. Mm. Yeah. And is there a role for um, secondhand shopping in that in the oh, mix yeah. there? Or, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yep, yeah. I love secondhand shopping. I'm sure. Yep, this is secondhand. Yeah, got a couple secondhand things on. This is. Um, it's a huge role. I mean, as, as the longer lifespan we can give any garment or accessory, the better that it is for the planet and the people who make these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I ask? Do you feel um, as though things are going in the right direction in Australia? I mean, I was in um, London. I think it was around 2007 when Primark opened um, at Marble Arch. I don't know how many people know Primark, but um, it's a really fast fashion label. And um, what was striking was not just the fact that there was lines around the block, but that when you go, they give you this bag that's about that big, this mesh container, as though the expectation is you're just going to buy like kilos and kilos of, of clothes. Um, and, yeah, that was uh, quite a horrible um, thought that... It, thing you know this clothing is really truly disposable um we don't have anything like that here yet um what's your sense of of the direction of things yeah well I I suppose when we got the when we got H&M and Zara we did have that that like hype built around these stores opening I think Zara um made a comment that it was the most successful opening they Mm, ever had they had cleared the racks within three minutes they had to bring out all new all new garments so I think we have seen both with Zara and H&M coming into Australia. It, at this time, it's a really interesting time to see what's going on because we have finally gotten these brands that everyone around the world has been talking about for a while and people in Australia have wanted them and they've gone overseas to shop there. And So there's that excitement and, you know, as a fashion lover, I, can't, I understand why people get excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have this kind of upswelling of people that are more more aware. So... I am optimistic and hopeful because I, I can feel it increasing and I can feel more people being excited about it. But whether we can completely yeah, forget that um, the impact that some of those big fast fashion brands have on Australia, I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great, thanks. Well, I think at this point we might um, open up to questions from, from the audience. And Michelle has a roving mic, so... Hi, um, this is Salisa. Um, from a business perspective, like um, in terms of financial stability and um, kind of what you were saying before about it being, you know, when it's cheaper, it's obviously going to have an impact for businesses to be more sustainable financially. Um, like how, what would, do you think their first step would be in terms of being able to stabilise yeah, still making a profit, but trying to reduce their um, impact. Yeah, well, that's a really tough question, and I don't know <laughs> if I'll have a magic answer for it. But I mean, the first thing would be if it's a fashion company that's starting up and wants to to be financially viable, you you do have to make a profit on what you're what you're buying. But if you can just look for 
areas where you can cut back on other costs, not in terms of the material, the quality of materials or the production values, but look at some of maybe the other administrative costs where you can cut down. Um, there's some really successful examples of brands, like there's a brand called Everlane out of the States. It's this really transparent <coughs> brand. And, I mean, it's more than if you go shopping at, at some of these fast fashion chains, but it's not an unreasonably pricey brand to purchase from. And what's really great about them is they just they outline... Um, it's a fully transparent company, and they outline the markup on every single thing. And so you can kind of learn from companies like that. They're still making enough money, but they've cut out some of the middlemen and, you know, probably some of the marketing costs too. But, yeah, you still have to charge it. You still have to make money, definitely. I have so many questions, but I'll just limit myself. Um, I want to know about silks from Kit, but I want to ask an important question about... Um, Maybe this... I'm sorry, I don't remember your name from... Jen. Jen. Um, when it comes to the salespeople, I remember with Fashion Revolution, there was, you know, the big motto was, who made your clothes? And um, they, consumers were told to go into stores and go online and ask brands, what are you doing to be sustainable? Where was this made? Was it made ethically? And um, so I did that. went around to some places... And um, the salespeople just looked at me like I was insane. <laughs> Including at David Jones? Um, no. I didn't. <laughs> but it wouldn't have surprised me if they did. No, yeah. the, they just, like, like, we would just say, where was well, we this made? Was it made ethically? Was this made, is this sweatshop free, whatever? And they'd go, what? <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, like, they'd go, why do you want that? How would, you know, they just thought we were crazy. For, so I wonder what if that's going to be addressed and, you know, if, if yeah. that's happening with salespeople or what's the role of salespeople? Uh, so in my five-year strategy is um, on the, I think, the uh, number, component number five, building internal awareness and capacity. Sorry, losing the ability to speak. Um, store staff are an important part of that. My, I want to be in a place where all of our store staff go... Actually, we've got a really strong ethical sourcing program in place, and um, this is what that means, and this is where you can get more information about it. Um, we've got a lot of work to do to get there, um, and I think, you know, I think it's important to raise it at the point of sale to that staff member, but it's really important to raise it in social media as well, because the impact, the, the fact is, impact that social media can have um, is pretty significant, and also the risk is that the store staff might not tell anyone, they're kind of so like, ooh, this person asked me that. It doesn't necessarily go anywhere, whereas actually companies are looking at their social media feeds and you know, we're very clear about the number of um, posts we got around the fashion revolution and who made my clothes and so forth. Actually, as an aside, if you look at my Twitter feeds, you can see um, some shots I did from when we visited factories in China. That was the first attempt to do who made my clothes, but, <laughs> which is in June. Uh, Kit, I'd just like to say I love how incredibly uh, pragmatic you are in terms of what you're doing. Uh, the question I have is how do you determine where your ethics lie or the measure of your sustainability? So with cotton and insecticides, for example, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm presuming that those insecticides allow farmers to yield more cotton per hectare 
than, than organic in some cases. I don't have an in-depth knowledge. I don't know. So those organic t- cotton farmers may have to, to yield the same amount per hectare, take out native landscapes and reduce biodiversity. So there's that. The opposite. It, it may be. I don't, I don't have a detail. Like a... Then there's that. Also, in terms of cotton production in Australia, we have some of the most oldest soils in the world and it's occurring in the most arid land in the world. If you take that as a angle of your sustainability or ethics and then I don't source cotton from Australia, you, then, you therefore have to import the cotton and all the embedded energy that's, that, that is involved in, the, in that importing of cotton. Yeah. How do you, where do you draw the line? How do you make your decisions? Yeah. It's a really interesting question, actually. And I think, um, broadly speaking, it's, it's, it's the balance. It's balance. And um, in terms of cotton, so a very specific story was, um, and David Jones hopefully will start working with him soon, I went and saw this guy in, um, <clears throat> in Hong Kong and he invested a lot of money and time into organic cotton farming. And he, you know, this Nobel Prize winning woman worked with him and they built this whole community to get it right. And after five years, and he almost, like, he was down to his final cent, they just mastered it. And I said, how did you do, like, what, how, what, how do you efficiently and effectively uh, grow cotton organically? And he said, biodiversity. So nature has all the answers, and it's about growing apple orchards next to cotton, next to vegetables, next to fruit, next to cotton. So so that all the insects then, the cotton insects, get ne- eaten by the apple insects and the vegetable insects eat the apple insects and everyone's eating each other and no one's then... The, apple, the, um, the cotton is protected. And from that, the, there is organic apples and there are, or there's organic um, vegetables. And what has happened as a result is <coughs> there are, there's this whole organic uh, fruit and vegetable community that is built around... The fields, um, all the workers' health has has increased. There, you know, there was a woman who had asthma and all these problems going on because in nearby farms as well, it, it can drift over. So that you've got to get a lot of land, yes. Um, but in saying that, insecticides and pesticides are very expensive. So land that um, is used up with cotton that is not grown organically um, is the, the farmers are having to buy these insecticides and pesticides, which um, Monsanto kindly increases the price of, so that once their crops are uh, reliant on it, they, they have to have it for the next um, crop season, and they're increasing the prices on them. And it was one farmer every 20 minutes, was it? 20 minutes? Yeah. One farmer every 20 minutes um, in India drinks the insecticide and pesticide and dies, uh, kills themselves because they have ruined the land by contaminating it with the insecticides and pesticides. They can't afford it anymore because um, Monsanto, the prices are going up and the, the um, crops need more of it as well. They, they, um, they get thirstier for the insecticides and pesticides. So 
So when you look at it like that, it's it's to me there is no efficiency or effectiveness. It's organic cotton. I'm so strictly like even um, the cotton, the um, care labels in our garments are from organic cotton. Um, the um, all the hanging tape is organic cotton. Like I refuse to use any cotton that's non-organic. In terms of Australia, I am unaware, and I have um, looked into it. There is no organic there's cotton. No, there's no organic cotton in Australia. in Australia. So if there was, I'd be all for it. But um, there is not. And when I purchased um, a cushion cover uh, at the shop recently, I was talking to her about organic cotton, and she said, oh, "I used to live near a cotton farm, and." you know, it was really bad, like all these people were getting sick and I know exactly what you mean about this organic cotton now, so we moved far from it. It was having a profound effect on the community. So I think in in fairness, I um, not audited myself, but I had a chat recently with Cotton Australia and and they have as an industry, there's 1,200 cotton farmers in Australia um, and they as an industry have moved quite far in terms of how they're managing their environmental pr- practices. So I think it's quite different from where it was 20 years ago, but because it's it's genetically modified, which is why it's not yeah. organic. Yeah, that was the other thing um, he was saying, is that the natural cotton seeds are becoming um, close to being endangered. So a natural cotton seed, as nature does, it gives back. Um, at the end of its cycle, there's another little cotton seed there ready to, to replant, whereas um, genetically modified cotton seeds, which is also um, provided by the same people, that Monsanto, that provide the insecticides and pesticides, um, at the end of that crop, there, there's, no, and there's not another seed. So then you have to go and buy another seed. So that's why cotton farmers as well are increasingly finding it financially um, straining in, in um, developing nations. So. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> oh, Jada, I wanted to ask you a question about your surveys of consumers that you reported on. You, you gave some <coughs> quotes from consumers who were interested in particular issues and uh, looking for leadership from David Jones, if they were the CEO. Um, I mean, was there a range of views? That's one question. The second question is, the people who are most positive about um, David Jones taking leadership on ethical sourcing and supply chain issues, um, do you have a sense of what kind of consumers they are, what kind of David Jones customer they are? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, did, you, did you segment your customers in some way before you thought about which ones were responding in that way? It's um, relatively fresh off um, uh, fresh, the consumer data, so I haven't seen the raw um, breakdown in terms of customer um, piece, but my understanding is that it's your standard DJ's customer, which is actually younger than you would think, um, is what we've also understood from that process. Um, And actually, no, there wasn't a range of views, but to be honest, I mean, that question was probably leans it so I mean, the question was if you were David Jones as CEO what would you do to inspire positive change um, so that leans itself to that type of answer but I mean and there was other things around packaging and environment and da 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 but everything that was related to ethical sourcing was really quite detailed and quite strong along those themes that I noted Hi um I'm curious about the position of hemp as a possible product material because I, I think a lot of people don't understand that there's lots of different types. There's 
lots of strains that are not hallucinogenic or whatever you want to call it. And, and they're much more productive. Uh, I mean, the yield is much higher for the materials, the input. I've had a chat with Lisa about it previously, and I know there is no research with um, in the, the flexibility of, of fabrics made with hemp because there's just not enough time put into it. But given the branding capacity that you have to influence people and the status behind being more sustainable in one way or another and not negating that it's got to look cool and, and fit you, how, how do you think hemp is coming along as a possible replacement almost to cotton considering it's so water-dependent? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, um, hemp... Is it, it's fantastic. It binds the soil, um, it enriches the soil, it needs very little water and it grows very quickly so you can crop it very, very fast. So hemp is, is one um, fibre that's so brilliant for the planet to be using and it would be great to, to have the balance more towards hemp than cotton. There's a company called Hemp Vortex in China who have done some really beautiful hemp options because you know I think 20 years ago it was sort of hessian sack feeling and it comes down once again to the consumer has to love it and and it's got to feel good on her skin and or his skin and it's got to be desirable the the actual fabric it can't be scratchy and horrible so um now with um, the technology going on in in textile uh, development, there are you know a lot more options with with um, beautiful hemp um, fabrics. And the one we've just used <clears throat> in the first collection called Number One Collection, a beautiful hemp which is mixed with silk. So. It's soft, very soft and supple, yeah. And and when I was overseas, <coughs> briefing media and <coughs> stores on it, I was like, and this is hemp, <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my god, wow! And it was like a bit of a. Everyone thought it was extremely cool. They couldn't believe that it was actually hemp, the touch and feel of it, because it was so, um, it was so soft. So here's two hemp and more of it, and. <laughs> Hallucinogenic or not? No. <laughs> it might take Everyone. me a while to get hemp at DJs, I think. <laughs> I DJs have bought hemp. They've got heaps of it. Oh, that's true, that's true. Yeah. The branded range. And yeah. it was $4.50 US per metre and it was mixed with silk and it's beautiful and it's textured and it will be on the floor in David Jones in, in four weeks' time and the price points at retail are really good and it's sort of a top like that in hemp um, available. So... Yeah, hemp is great, and, and there are definitely um, positive movements towards good options. I think we've got time for one or two more questions, so, yep. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, firstly, I'd like to say thank you for all your hard work, all three of you, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, and if possible, I'd like to ask all three what you see the government's role being in this sector. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really good question. I'm not. Uh, I'm involved in a um, a working group, the Attorney General's working group on human trafficking and supply chains, and that's a multi-stakeholder group of companies, 
NGOs, um, academics, etc., broad range of industry stakeholders set up to advise the government on policy responses related to human trafficking and supply chains. So that's really exciting given I didn't have a lot of faith that that was going to survive when the current government came in. Um, however, it has and it's working and it's in the second phase now. So that's wonderful. One of the, if, if anything genuine comes out of that, I think, I think there's a great opportunity for government to play. I think there's a need for um, some kind of infrastructure around promoting sustainable fashion. So whether that's an, an industry organisation or... Um, I mean, obviously, Ethical Clothing Australia has done amazing work on, on the Australian supply chains, but you know, the really hard bit is the overseas supply chains, and I think um, and how you influence those, but also what all this all the stuff around materials that we know that other people could know as well. So I think there's a huge role for government to play. I'm not sure, quite sure what they're doing right now. Um, yeah, I'd agree that there is a role for government to play. There's some countries in Europe that have banned certain dyes and colours from being used in fabrics, and we haven't done that here in Australia. I think that's a really good starting point, um, basic safety for Australians. Um, but also, and, and again, I would second the work that Ethical Clothing Australia do in, in Australia is really great, but when we're looking at all the clothing that's coming from overseas... Um, without being an expert on trade, I just feel like if we could have some better understanding of what's coming in and out of the country, because, for example, in the U.S., once they um, relaxed the free trade agreements um, back in the 90s, that's when all of the offshoring of clothing production started to happen. Um, the U.S. used to be very strong in clothing production, and then it was something like between mid-90s to 2000, they went from 56 production, 56% of the clothing bought in America was made in America to less than 2% of all clothing mm-hmm. being um, bought in America was made in America. And that was purely a result of these trade agreements and the different regulations that said who could make what where and send it here, and etc. And so I'd imagine that there's something similar that could be done here in terms of, you know, whether, it's, whether we want to increase Australian production or not, but just having a better understanding of who we're making agreements with and understanding what type of regulations they have in place so that if we're buying garments that are produced there, we have some level of confidence that the human rights are being looked after for the people who are producing them. So. And I suppose, um, you know, there is a cost in using non-organic cotton or or um, leather that um, chromium-6 has been used in the tanning process, Um, you know, toxic dyes, and there's a cost, and the cost is to the planet. And um, what would be wonderful is if the government almost taxed, you know, put high taxes on any imports of of textiles that are harming the planet because the cost is there and it's to the planet. And that's where I see... You know, it's like um, fabrics that are having low impact, if not positive impact, on the planet shouldn't have any taxes on them because they're they're acting in the right way. But fabrics that actually are costing um, our precious resources should be uh, charged. And don't think Tony Abbott is going to be the one who's going to implement it. The other, um, and you know, it's that thing governments. At this stage, it's very short-term sort of views that they have. Um, 
The government's got an opportunity as a purchaser as well. They're actually the biggest um, through the army, um, through the Ministry of Defence, is the biggest purchaser of anything in Australia. And they have a huge textile purchaser because of all the uniforms. So there's the potential to influence that way as well. Mm. Imagine organic cotton army uniforms. Yeah. Kill, kill, kill in organic cotton. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that might be an excellent note. <laughs> one final question. Okay, all right, we'll do one very quick question to end. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, I just wanted to ask for a, a fashion label or a designer is, who's wanting to source sustainable fabric and material. Is there any kind of central database uh, where fashion designers can go to find the companies or the places to source that, or is it up to every label to do their own research and find their own providers? That's, that's a really interesting question because that's exactly what I was... You know, I had the luxury um, of having the time, time luxury, for a year of being at home and researching and researching and, and you don't... You know, when you're moving so fast in fashion, you don't have that time. And I also um, was lucky enough to speak to a lady in London who we're always um, constantly in touch with who is basically a library of, of low-impact, positive-impact textiles who gave us specific... We paid for it, but um, supply details um, like Hemp Vortex. That's where we got um, information from. But GOTS is, is good, um, GOTS website, uh, that's a lot of the suppliers that we're using that we got from um, from J- Joss, Jocelyn Whipple at the Wright Project are also on GOTS and I think it's, it's about, it's researching, it's sort of dedicating time to researching and Jana and I have sort of said it, would, wouldn't it be great if David Jones could provide for their suppliers a, um, a contact list of like-minded suppliers that are acting sustainably and, and um, you know, encouraged to, to do low-impact um, textiles. So, I mean, Gina, come and speak to us afterwards and we'll give you uh, contact details. I'm very happy to share with you <clears throat> any of the suppliers that we use. Um, but that's one <laughs> um, person. But yeah, for everybody, I think GOTS is is it's just the hard slog of research. GOTS is the um, organic cotton certification, so it's probably the one that's held up as best in the industry. There's a number of different types of certification, but GOTS is the one. And silks and all sorts of textiles. Oh, they do yeah, all, yeah, yeah, all textiles. Yeah, 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 all textiles. Yeah, so they yeah. and manufacturers and yeah. There's um in down at RMIT there's a group of people building the sustainable fashion portal so just check that out as well it's not a database per se of supply, suppliers exactly but it's anything that's been um, published on any sustainable fashion stuff you can kind of search through their database as well and um, yeah and there's plenty of consultants too if you get stuck with anything. Um, All right, I think unfortunately we have to draw it to a close, but please join me in thanking our panellists for really interesting talk. Thanks very much. Thanks for putting up with the cold, everyone, and I hope to see you at the next event.